It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast contains explicit language. Hey there, I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Shurkin. And welcome back, listener, to the podcast you wait all week to listen to, Candidate Confessional. Now, Jason... As you know, most of the politicians who we interview here on the show, they kind of love politics as a sport, and they understand that campaigns and all the crap that comes with it, it's just sort of part of the game. They don't take it personally. Not at all. But every now and then, someone is recruited to run for office who doesn't anticipate just how awful and nasty it can be. Someone who is stunned by the trade-offs you have to make, the begging for dollars that has to be done, the character assaults that come your way. Richard Carmona was just that person. Exactly. This guy had an absolutely sterling record. He was a veteran of the Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. a well-respected sheriff in Arizona, and he'd been the Surgeon General of the United States. Not only that, Surgeon General appointed by George W. Bush. And he'd been recruited by both political parties to run for office. And so in the 2012 elections, he finally decides to throw his hat in the ring. He's going to run as a Democrat against Congressman Jeff Flake, who is a Republican. What happened next was, for Carmona, demoralizing. Exactly. To put it simply, in his Senate run, he hated basically every single minute of his run for office, which ended in a narrow defeat. Hence why he's on the show. We only interview the losers. So in his interview with us, which happened a little bit after his loss... He made it abundantly clear that the bitterness of that campaign lingers to this day. Where are you guys calling from? We're in D.C. Oh, how unfortunate. I'm sorry <laughs> to hear Beyond the bluster. Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. And the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast. I'm Sam Stunn. <laughs> I'm sorry. Actually, I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And we approve this podcast. You know, obviously, you were a, a sort of perfect, ideal uh, candidate just from your background as a doctor, a Vietnam War veteran. Um, you're a deputy sheriff. Um, you were, uh, you know, the Surgeon General under Bush. You had these sort of bipartisan credentials. You were sort of seen more as an independent, I think. Um, what was the sales pitch that the Democrats, you know, gave you? First of all, let me preface my remarks. I had no political uh, aspirations. Just, just did not. I just didn't see myself as a, politic- as a politician in any, at any level. I had had the opportunity many times, and as you probably saw in my campaign, the Republicans had recruited me when I was Surgeon General to run for Congress and to run for governor, to leave my post as Surgeon General and run in Arizona as a Republican. 
I've been an independent my whole life. I truly do see value at times in both parties, but I also see the dysfunctionality in both parties, unfortunately, too often now. So so I, I resisted for months, and I just thought, you know, I don't think so. But, you know, they kept pressing and, and just uh, asking me, and friends that I had in, in Arizona and outside of Arizona who were Democrats called and said, you know, you really should consider this. It's a great opportunity. And, you know, the same thing, the perfect thing. You know, you're really an independent. You're a cop. You're a military guy. You're a doc. You've been Surgeon General. You'd be a great candidate. And, you know, quite frankly, I, I don't want to say it like I wore me down, but I, I saw it more as a calling to go back to service. And I spoke to Republican leaders I know, and I spoke to Democratic leaders I know. And the interesting thing was the Republican leaders I know who will remain unnamed, very big Republican leaders who I knew from my time as Surgeon General and before, all were very supportive. They said, you know, you should do it. This is about what America is about. They gave me the patriotic speech. They said, independent of the party, we need good leaders. So it kind of buoyed me up a little bit that, you know, I had Republicans saying that this was the right thing to do for the country, and that's why I did it. Well, let me ask you, obviously, you <laughs> to go back, your, your reputation, you know, was sterling. I mean, you were highly regarded, and, and, and there was little dint to your reputation. When you were making this decision, how much did it weigh on you, the fact that this process is grueling in that people and it's a meat grinder in that people come out at the end of it looking much worse than they start at the beginning of it yeah you know it's interesting you mentioned that because many of my friends who are on k street now in washington people i work with when i was surgeon general who are those that you know go in and out of public private sector depending on which party's in power all said the same thing god you really want to go through that was there one conversation that tipped the scales you know, uh, I, I, I think it was after three or four months of many conversations from Democratic leadership, from me reaching out to colleagues at the local level, at the state level, at a national level. I, I can't point to anyone. Uh, really? Didn't the president reach out to you? Well, he did, but I also spoke to Republicans, Republican presidents of the past as well. So, <laughs> so I mean, I, I see that was the thing. It, it became an issue because... Uh, once I declared, you know, I was accused of being Obama's hand-chosen tax-and-spend liberal. And I was like, I met Senator Obama once. Once. We did the Larry King show together. I never, ever had an exchange with him after that. Well, what was Obama's uh, sales pitch to you? What was that conversation like? It was actually, it wasn't a sales pitch. He, he, I, I will tell you that it was a, a very... Uh, Nice conversation. Uh, we, I, I reminded him of our meeting, you know, a couple of years before, or a few years before, on the Larry King show, where we, we shared the hour with Larry King. I was a relatively new Surgeon General, and Obama was uh, a new Senator. And we shook hands and had a couple of niceties for a couple of sentences, and that was it. And then we answered Larry's questions. He called one day. I was out. My secretary called and said, the President would like to speak to you. And I said, President of who? Or what? And he said, no, the President. I said, okay, fine. Go ahead and schedule the call. He called. He said, Rich, how are you? I said, fine, Mr. President. Uh, you know, what's up? He says, well, I hear that uh, you're being courted to run. And he said, you know, I know it's tough. I've been through it. And I'm paraphrasing. He just said, I hope you strongly consider it. He didn't urge me. He didn't push me. He said what everybody else had said who was trying to recruit me. Did you at all push back to him and say, you know, I'm really, I'm, I don't really see myself as a politician or I don't really want to go through this? I did say to him, I said, I, you know, I said, Mr. President, I have my reservations because I've worked the Beltway and I see how difficult it is.
you know, but it was a very friendly conversation. It wasn't like a negative pushback. I just basically said, my reservations are, you know, I've seen the beast. Was there anything in your experience as Surgeon General that gave you pause as well, like you had seen the beast up close? Oh, oh absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when um, uh, I had uh, two occasions where I was asked to come over to the White House and senior staff asked me about considering running for Congress because it was a new congressional seat off open. And I, and I said, oh, gosh, I'm flattered. Thank you very much. But, you know, really, I... I love being Surgeon General. It fits my background, my demeanor. Uh, I love, you know, working in a bipartisan fashion for the people. And they said, yeah, but, you know, we're pretty sure by our numbers that you can become a congressman. I said, I- I'm thrilled, but that's not my aspiration. And I said, uh, you know, when I look at the numbers, I'm, I'm the 17th person in the history of the nation to have this job as Surgeon General of the United States. You're asking me to trade it to be one of 435 and run every two years in perpetuity. Why would I do that? Another time I was also uh, asked to run for governor. And it was interesting that the person that came out to uh, speak to me on behalf of the Republican Party in Arizona was uh, Governor Jan Brewer when she was the Secretary of State. She came out with a contingent of people to say, you know, we think you'd be an excellent candidate. We uh, hope that you consider running you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I said the same thing to her. And I said it very differentially. And they came back at me a couple of times. And, you know, like, you know, are you sure this is a great opportunity? Not only them, but, you know, the White House staffers who do those things. And, and uh, you know, try to encourage me to see a bigger picture, to enter politics, to maybe ascend and, you know, and go from a governor to maybe, you know, and even the quote was said, you know, you could be the first Hispanic president. And I said, but I really don't have those aspirations. Looming over all of this, uh, as you're being sort of given the sales pitch, is the situation involving uh, uh, Gabby Giffords and what she's going to do with her health, her life, and her political future. Um, how much of that was affecting your own thinking, um, and how tough was and delicate was that whole situation? Well, I knew Gabby for many years. I knew her family, and she was a dear friend. In fact, uh, I spoke to her when she decided to run. As you know, I was a deputy sheriff here, and the sheriff is very close to her. We took her to lunch one day. So the issue with Gabby was never an issue for me. Uh, I was very, I was here the day that she got shot. I went to see her in the hospital that, as she was going into surgery. And several of the people that got shot, I knew them personally. So it was a very personal thing for me here in Arizona. I was thrilled that she was able to recover. And like everybody else here, I was saddened that she was not able to consider continue as a congresswoman because of her injuries, because she had so much potential. And, and her and I shared a lot of the same politics. You know, we were pretty moderate people. We were willing to work with both, and that was her record and it was my record here. I there, I, there was a lot of talk of her possibly running for that Senate seat at one point. Yes, and had she, and in fact, in fact, that I joked with her that I said, if you hadn't been injured, I wouldn't be in this bind, okay, of being asked to run, because... Everybody thought that she would be the logical person that might go to that Senate seat. Absolutely, no question. And I recognized right away, had she not been injured, that nobody would have reached out for me because she would have had pretty good support uh, here in Arizona. But, of course, she would have run into the same challenges that I ran into, a state that starts out with 
I was told I was told that um and correct me if I'm wrong that um early on like almost the situation with your perspective or uh congressional campaign that early on in the Senate run uh you were given polling showing that you could win the race uh that it, yes. not that it was an uh, not that it was a shoe in but that you were really well positioned to win and you probably would the the pollsters who who were the ones as I was getting ready to make my decision, who were giving me information, because I did ask those questions. Well, what are my odds? I've never run a political campaign. Who, you, how do you do this? The first polling I saw, which was whatever they call those early polls that they just throw names out, showed me very competitive, you know, within a few points, and that I would have a good chance. And recognizing that um, that was just a little glimpse that there was a possibility, sure, that helped me make, made, make my decision, but I also recognize that it was an extremely difficult uphill battle in a state that leans much further right than left, in a state where there are a quarter of a million more Republican voters than Democrats, and in a county where everybody knew me and I knew I would have support here, but as I got out to the bigger state, which leaned more to the right, that whoever was running on the other side would have the advantage, no matter how good or bad they are, because of the partisanship involved in elections. Once you decided to run, what was your, you know, what was your thoughts on like a campaign strategy? Well, my strategy really was to surround myself with a lot of smart people. Having been in leadership positions before in military, law enforcement, and academics in a university, uh, you become humbled every day when you find out you don't know everything. So the key is to bring people in who have different ideas than you have, who can tell you when the emperor has no clothes on, and I did that. The second step was to look at, well, what's, what are the issues here for the state of Arizona? From energy, from immigration, from health, uh, uh, all of those things. And working with that team, I said, these are issues I have knowledge in. These are issues that I have uh, a willingness to take a stand on. And that's where I really started to learn about politics. Because I was told repeatedly, Rich, you have too much information. You're a professor. You will not have time to speak for a half hour or 45 minutes like in a university class. You have to present your ideas in sound bites. And you have to be careful about those sound bites because if you overextend it, somebody will clip it and add it to something else and have you saying something you didn't say. I really didn't understand that until it happened to me the first few times. What was the first time it happened to you? On health issues, where they, uh, on the Affordable Care Act, where the first one of the first... Uh, outings I had, and they was asked about affordable care, and I said, look, um, every president since uh, the turn of the century, last century, tried to do something for health care for the United States, and generally they have been, history has tells us they've been thwarted by the other party because of politics. I do believe that we should, as a nation, pursue health care for all. I do believe that there are excellent parts of the Affordable Care Act, but I also believe that there are parts that need to be revised because there are untoward consequences to some of the things that have been put in. So that's, that was like a five-minute longer response than I just gave you, but that was essentially what I said. The ad then came out uh, where they clipped what I said and Obama. said, here's Carmona speaking on the Affordable Care Act, but and he is a supporter of Obama. But yes, I support it. A big government takeover of our health care system. But yes, I support it. Hard-working families, a trillion dollars in new taxes. But yes, I support it. So it's, it was a hard learning for me because I've been a teacher, been a professor. I'm used to explaining to people. I'm used to justifying my actions. 
and politics is very different, as you all know. What were some of the other rookie mistakes that you made early on? Um, I, I think that, you know, on, on immigration, on guns, I mean, there's all, a whole bunch of things where they tried to educate me, and my problem was that I was always trying to explain the rationale, as you would as a professor in school. So here's what I'm recommending. Let me tell you why. And it's like, Rich, nobody cares. All they want to know is, what are you going to do with A, B, and C? On immigration, I remember when it came up, and of course my opponent had clearly a, a politician for a decade and a half, uh, had very crisp, clear uh, statements that on, on every issue. So like on the border issue, he always would say, well, we have to secure the border first. That was the big, and, and if you looked at the Republican playbook, that was it. Every that was that was what they told all of their people. So any any congressperson or senator at the time, that was the first thing they said. We must secure the border first. So of course, when they asked me, I said, "Well, let me tell you my perspective as a police <laughs> officer who has worked the border for 25 years." You already lost them, Rich. Yeah. Yeah, and, that, and, that was, <laughs> and I, I've. I've I've, I've done arrests on the border. I've done listening and, and observation posts. I've seen drug dealers and planes and drones come across. And I said, you can't, there's no way, no politician can tell you that you absolutely have to secure the border. I said, we, that should be aspirational. But the fact of the matter is, every measure we have, they have a countermeasure. They have radios that listen to our radios. They come up with submarines. They fly drones across at a low level under our radar. And that doesn't mean we should give up. But I'm saying, honestly, we have to work harder. And until we reduce demand for the product on this side, this will be a challenge for generations to come. And let me guess what they said. They said, Rich Carmona does not want to secure the border. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Was there ever a time where you found that you, you know, against your better judgment, said something or curtailed a statement or framed it in a way that you did it because of political expediency, but you just felt bad about it? I, th every, I could tell you the truth that every time I did political speak, I always felt bad about it because I knew that the issues were much more complex than could be defined in a soundbite. So I did it because my staff told me, and it was clear that I didn't have the time to explain when you're given two minutes or five minutes and so on. And so I had to switch my, my approach. But I can tell you after every one of those press conferences or discussion, I would always go in and I'd say to them, God damn, it's more complicated than that. Let me ask you about the other awful element of a campaign, right? There's there's the need to speak in politically lease or whatever you call it, and then there's the fundraising. Just how oh. terrible, just how oh. terrible was fundraising for you? It was the worst thing. I, I mean, talk to my, my campaign manager, Alexis Tamaran. You talk to her, and, and if you, in fact, if you're writing an article, you should talk to her because she used to tell people, she said, Rich is the greatest candidate we've ever had, but he's the worst candidate because he doesn't want to be a candidate. What was, like, the worst phone call you had to make to get to get money from someone? I mean, how bad did it actually get, and how awful was the and whole it, process? It was, well, it was terrible because every day I had to spend several hours a day on the phone, and they give you call lists. And when I went to Washington a few times to visit, and I was at the senatorial campaign offices right across from the Capitol, I'd see all the senators there every day. They, they had rotations. They would be coming in and sitting at a phone for two, three hours a day, and they'd be, and the Republicans did it too. Hey, Joe, it's, it's you know, Senator so-and-so. Need to talk to you. You know, we got an election coming up, and times are tough, and you know those damn, and you fill in the blank, Republican or Democrat, which, whichever party you are, 
They're screwing us, not letting us do things. They're holding up our legislation, and I need you to give us more money so we can fight the battle and win for us. I mean, it was the same, it was the same pitch on both sides. You'd blame the other guy. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And ask for money so you could go there and save the world. And it was so disingenuous. So disingenuous. I, I got to tell you, it was the worst part of being in the political campaign. Were you actually it, given a, a script, kind of like a telemarketer, where you just had to repeat the script? Well, it's not so much scripts. They would give you, like, outlines to say, here are things that you should talk to these people about, you know? Mm-hmm. They, they found out early on that I wasn't a script guy. In fact, when I first ran, I got a playbook from the Democratic Party, and I thought it was interesting that they, when they recruited me, it was like, Rich, we want you to be your own guy. You're independent. You're outspoken. You know the issues. But then, like, a week later, I get this loose-leaf book, and it's the answers to all the questions. And I was like, I'm not going to say this. We've been told this by several people, and I'm curious to hear what you say. But we were always told that uh, the money people in the party uh, think they're incredibly smart political strategists, too, and that they come at you with sort of inane pieces of campaign advice. Did that happen to you, and what was the most inane piece of campaign advice you got from a donor? Well, I think that I got both good and bad advice. I don't think I ever got anything malicious. I think that well-intended people who did not understand the political process who were giving you money bought your time to tell you this is what I think you should do. Okay? So, and you just have to take it with a grain of salt. And as I matured in the political arena, I understood that some of the information was well-intended, but was crazy, that it wouldn't help me. And then I had others that were the chronic political donors, if you will, who knew campaigning better than I. And they would actually come in and sit down with me and say, let me tell you what you need to do. You're in an uphill battle here, but you're, you can win, and here's how you can win. And usually they were right. What was the, some of the crazy advice you got? Maybe the most, most common one was, just tell the truth. You have all that information. You've been a professor. You just, just tell them the truth, you know? And, and it was like, the truth is seldom what you need in one of these debates or one of these interviews with an editorial board. You know, was there a point where, after after you entered, where you said, I'm going to win this thing? There was a point. I would say that uh, if you look at the numbers, 
my numbers trailed not by much because my opponent was in a primary and they were beating each other up pretty well. And then that ended around June. And then the polls out after that had us tied. And it was like, oh, my gosh, I guess this is for real. And up until that point, the Republican Party had kind of dismissed me. They didn't put much money in because they thought there was no chance of a Democrat winning. But then over the summer, you saw the money start pouring in uh, because they saw the polling and the polling was close. Was there a point where you're like, not just I'm going to win this, but oh, fuck, I'm actually going to win this? Uh, I don't think I ever got that complacent. I, I, I remember thinking, I think I can do this. But I also recognized that there were so many variables out of my control, including including the fact that uh, uh, so much I did not control and that there were a quarter million more Republicans. I, you know, I had to be able to convert a couple of hundred thousand Republicans to even have a chance of winning. So one of the things I did when I went into the when I went into the uh, uh, if you will the country of Arizona, where all the, uh, the American legions and veterans of foreign war and all of these things. I said to my team, I need to go to those places and talk to those folks because those places are typically Republican strongholds. And I said, I need to go talk to them because they need to see that I'm one of them. So I, I remember the first time I went to, uh, I was up in Prescott, I think, and I think it was a Veterans of Foreign War, could have been an American Legion. The place was packed with veterans, and, and we spoke veteranese. I spoke to them about combat. I talked to them about the suicide rate. I talked to them about how poorly our veterans were being cared for. I, I gave them the, my own insight as being a disabled veteran and a shared experience with them about being a police officer in Arizona, about working the border, about going out and doing, you know, qualifications with my weapons because I'm a police officer. I won Prescott. No Democrat has ever won Prescott. And I think that scared the hell out of the Republicans, and they put a lot of money in and then uh, ran some very, very negative ads to undermine me with women, and those were totally untrue. You know, they found a woman who had been fired, not fired, but had lied on her resume. She had been served at the same time I did in, in the Bush administration and was very much uh, into radical, radicalized, if you will, Republican politics. And her and I battled every day. Yeah. When did you first see the ad obviously came to um, became a huge flashpoint in the race? There was an angry pounding on the door in the middle of the night. I'm a single mom. I feared for my kids and for myself. It was Richard Carmona, and I was his boss. Carmona is not who he seems. He has issues with anger, with ethics, and with women. Paint the scene of where you were when you first saw the ad and your reaction to it. I saw it in my campaign office. Actually, actually, the day it came out, uh, my campaign manager and our PR person called me and said, you need to see this. And I looked, and I said, oh, my God, that's Christina Beato. I said... She was a deputy assistant secretary, which is, you know, there's a million of those in Washington. She had aspirations to be secretary. She wanted to be the first female secretary. And she was used on a routine basis whenever they needed a doctor to talk about uh, taking away women's rights, about, you know, about abortion issues. She would come out and, you know, and be the, the doctor to say those things. And so, you know, we, she and I used to battle all the time. At one point she worked for me, and then... She became an acting assistant secretary, and they were considering moving her into the secretary, assistant secretary position. But, as you know, you have to go to Senate confirmation for that. So she put her paperwork together. And during that time, we disagreed on most everything because she would want me to say these things politically. And I said, I'm not saying that. But to get back to that, I, we, I, we know the issue pretty well. But the ad was 
what struck us about the ad was how, you know, plainly harsh and blunt it was. So you're sitting in your office. I'm assuming your campaign manager comes in and says, you got to see this. Yeah, well, listen, a lot of what you were seeing is retribution, okay? Because when she got caught and and I called her into my office and I admonished her, and she said to me, well, those were just typographical errors because English was my second language. I said, you're playing the ethnicity card. I said, you've been in this country since you were a young kid. You went to American high schools, college, and medical school and finished a residency, and you're telling me English is still a challenge to you? And she was real mad because I didn't take her side. I said, you lied. You got caught. You embarrassed the administration. So a lot of people told her that. But I think what happened was when she saw I was running, she went and volunteered, and she agreed to go on TV. The ad that she... I mean, she basically, she turned you into from a doctor to somebody that you'd want to file a restraining order against. I mean, this wasn't... And the fact is, the issue never occurred. She lived on a federal compound right where I lived, okay? I never went to her house, never banged on her door, and the idea... But again, you have this 30-second ad, how can I refute it if I don't have $20 million when they're running it every day for weeks, you know, multiple times a day and at prime time? The fact is, if that really happened and I banged on her door and forced my way in and threatened her and her children, there's federal police on that base. Why, why wasn't it reported? So walk I mean, us through, what is the strategy session then when you see the ad and your campaign uh, manager says, this is a big deal, we're, we're going to get screwed here. What do you guys decide to do to combat this thing and what do you talk through? Well, I wanted to address it personally. My staff told me that um, probably it's not in your best interest to do it personally. Let's get surrogates. Let's get women who have worked with you and academics and the military and have them respond. And that's what we did. You know, professors and a police captain I worked with for 20 years, a female, and they all said the same thing. You know, this is bogus. We've known Rich. He'd never do anything like that. Uh, I wanted to do it, but they said, look, Rich, we don't have the money to go up against them. I think I had a couple of million dollars left in the campaign. They had dumped in 10, 20 million, I can't remember what it was, but they were running these ads. Almost every station you turned on, there was that ad. And and I said, well, there's not much I can do. We had a press conference. I answered the questions. I told them, don't take my word. Go to the Washington Post. Look at the newspaper. This woman has no credibility. And they did, but because it had such staying power and it stayed out there in the front, it still hurt. But the pollsters told me that it really didn't make that much of a difference in the long run, that I really didn't lose that much of the women vote, if any. Well, let me ask you about the one other probably painful moment from the campaign. Yeah. Since, since we're going through, uh, right. let's just get them out of the way, right? Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the Candy Crowley comment during the debate. Now I know Candy Crowley fell, jeez. <laughs> You're free. <laughs> Not sure how to take that. I think the I think the context actually was that you and Flake were going at it, and it was getting a little bitter. And then the moderator, uh, referencing the debate between President Obama and Mitt Romney uh, from a few nights before, said, now I know how Candy Crowley feels. He said something about Candy Crowley, and that's where I was getting it. I said, I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember exactly. But the moderator is known to be a very well-dressed and, if you will, kind of a pretty boy. He's a very good-looking well-dressed, you know, kind of a GQ kind of looking guy. So when he said that to me, I said, oh, you're a lot prettier. I'm happy to deal with you. Okay? So they spun it, and they said he called her fat. If you play back the tape, there was nothing about obesity or anything. It was a jab at him 
to suggest he was kind of a pretty boy, you know, because that's his 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 reputation is his hair was always in place. Yeah, but you must have known at that moment that you had stepped in it, right? I actually at that moment I didn't. Honest to God, I didn't because because it was the, the shot was at the reporter who I knew not anything to do with Candy Crowley. When not did, at all. When did the, no. when did you realize that was a mistake that you were gonna it was gonna be a oh, thing? When when the staff later said to me, yeah, you know, and it hadn't gone viral yet. But staff had said to me, yeah, you shouldn't have said that. Just let that go. But then what happened was their side then started, um, you know, putting it out there on, on their social platforms and whatnot and expanded it to include that I, you know, uh, I demeaned an obese uh, reporter. And it was all of this stuff that was nothing. But, again, it's politics, you know. Every chance they get, they're going to try and, and change your words and spin them in a different way. So I take responsibility for it. But, again, it had nothing to do with Candy Crowley. And she and I, in fact, I called Candy after that. We spoke. And she said to me, she said, Rich, those are the things that happen in politics. I know you didn't, you know. She acknowledged that I didn't say anything to her. But I said, look, it's out of my control. I'm sorry, not for me, but I'm sorry that you get dragged into this and it had nothing to do with you. Do you feel like in the course of the campaign that maybe you, uh, was there any moment where you felt like maybe looking back on it, you crossed the line in your attacks against your opponent? Never. Never. Absolutely never, because they gave me information. They gave me information about things. We knew some problems he was having, family. We knew some problems that had come up otherwise. We knew some comments he had made, and I said, I'm not going to do that. What were, what were some of the just uh, between us and the <laughs> microphones? Uh, <laughs> Ain't no between us with reporters. Okay? So you you clearly learned a lesson from the campaign. Yeah, just let me let me tell you that you know, and it's what staff do, and you know, both sides do it. You have the what do they call it? Op research. You know, the opposition research. They have dossiers on everybody. So they say, hey, look at this. He did this. He said that. His kid did this. His wife does that. I'm like, I don't want any of that. I won't. So if you, you call, talk to, you talk to my campaign manager Alexis Tamaran. She'll tell you. She said Rich was a pain in the ass. He refused to go negative. And from the day one, I said I'm not going to do that because I'd rather lose than to get into this kind of a pissing contest with a skunk, and win, but win because of you know raising more money or demeaning my demeaning the candidate. Well, then I got to ask you, Rich. Do you think you lost because you didn't get into a pissing contest? I can't tell you. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I know that everybody has said they thought I ran a good race, that I did very well, that I, you know, got a lot of crossover votes. It was Arizona. It wasn't enough. But I can tell you I have no regrets. did you know you lost that, that night not i would i didn't know till that night when the numbers were coming in i mean it was probably i don't know a couple of oh let's see i was at the campaign thing and it was probably eight nine o'clock at night i can't remember and staff came in and said it doesn't look like we're going to make it you know and i hadn't looked at the numbers myself they were tracking everything and they just said it's not looking good and my um pr guy said i think i should prepare you know uh, a, a, a statement from you because it looks like we're not going to make it. And I said, okay, well, do whatever you have to do. Let's see how it turns out. <laughs> it sounds like you almost were relieved. In a lot of ways, I was relieved because it did take a burden off my, 
off my shoulders. But to be honest with you, I, 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 I was relieved. But I was also disappointed at how ugly true politics really is. And, and I really felt that I had something to give to my country, to my state, in leadership. And, and, I, and I felt that, you know, I didn't lose. In fact, I, 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 I people often said to me, uh, uh, Rich, we're sorry you lost. And I would say to them, I said, you know what? I really didn't lose. I, I have so much to go back to. I said, you all lost. If you believe in what I said and you believe in my leadership, it's you that lost, not me because I'm gainfully employed and I have lots of options. I said, that's really the issue. So, you know, I put it behind me. It's, you know, another mission. And uh, what, was the, what was the next morning like? You wake up? Is this like... I woke up. I, I, felt, I, 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 had, I, I felt both disappointed and elated not to have to go, ask, go pick up phones again and ask people for money, okay? <laughs> and, 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 not be, and not have to go and talk in sound bites anymore. Okay. All of that was gone, and I could be myself again. Do you regret sort of at the end of the process at all just the, the reputational hit that you took? Is that something that, that bothers you, that there's probably people in Arizona that just know you from that ad? Uh, well, I guess, I guess I haven't thought of it that way, but the people that know me know that it was untrue. Did a few people maybe believe it? You know, I can't control that, and it's not something that I'm dwelling on. Uh, my integrity is intact. I stood had people come and ask me to run for office again. And so I know that at least there's a group out there that thinks I'm a viable <laughs> Okay? The things that disturbed me the most were toward the end of the campaign when that ad was running, I pointed out to a lot of people how disingenuous politics was because when I was Surgeon General in a Republican administration, when I was nominated, it was Senator Kylan McCain who gave floor speeches at the U.S. Senate so that when I was going to be confirmed, and I'll remind you, I was confirmed unanimously by the U.S. Senate as a Surgeon General. And McCain and Kyle lauded my background as a soldier, as a disabled veteran, as a professor, and I was wonderful. But when I ran on the other ticket, they took out ads saying I was a terrible person and I couldn't be trusted. And they knew better, but it shows you how disingenuous the whole process is. The very people that supported me for national office and helped me to get a, a confirmation that was unanimous for the first time in history for Surgeon General are the ones that took me to task for being a terrible person because I didn't run in their party. When people call, well, when people call you now for, you know, to ask you to run, you know, how long do you let them stay on the phone and talk to you, or do you immediately tell them, you cut them off and say, look, I'm not, I'm not going to run? But when people call, I just said, look, I gave it a try. This was not something I aspired to. But because I saw it as a call to service, I agreed to do it. I gave up a year of my life and my family's life. I worked hard, and I knew it was going to be an uphill battle because it's Arizona, and I have no further, I have no political aspirations in the future. I'm happy doing what I do now, and I'm happy, you know, I would consider maybe going back and working in government, you know, for the right position. I'm not looking for that, though, but for an elected position to think about getting on the phone for four or five hours a day again for a year or two years. Okay, to talk in sound bites, to look at opposition research on my opponent, to try and undermine them, uh, I don't think that's worthy.
That was former Surgeon General Richard Carmona, who ran for the U.S. Senate in 2012 in Arizona and clearly did not enjoy the experience. A big thanks, as always, to Christine Canetta, who edited the podcast. You can find Candidate Confessional on iTunes or at thehuffingtonpost.com. Please subscribe. Tell your friends, your family, as always, to do the same. I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Sharp. And tune in next week when we interview Anthony Weiner. It's a good ran, one. Yeah, it's a good one. Who ran for New York City mayor in 2013. Till then, happy trails. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.